Father, we just lift up to you our friends who are serving in the medical community and especially at our local hospital, doctors and nurses who have been stretched, really stretched thin. I can't imagine the emotional toll that it takes on them. The long shifts that they put in already, knowing that some of these uh, patients will pass not being able to return home. I ask you, Lord, that you would give stamina, that you would give your love and mercy and compassion to these first responders and bless them. Bless them with renewed energy. Help them to be all the more aware of the great service that they are providing to our community. I ask, Father, for those who have been afflicted by this, who are suffering right now, I ask, Lord, that you would give healing. I pray, Lord, that you would give comfort and calm. I pray, Lord, that you would wrap around these folks, caring community to touch base in whatever way is safe, but to not forget these who are in need. And I pray, Lord, for those who are especially vulnerable to this sickness, I pray, Lord, that you would guard their hearts and minds as they seek to love you, as it feels isolating in so many ways. And I just pray, Lord, that you would care for them, that you would show your love for them, that you would communicate your love to them in new ways, very regularly. Help them especially to know that you are, you are that friend who sticks closer than a brother, that, we will, that you will never leave or forsake any of your own. And so we rest in that. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we want to hear from you. We want to engage with you. We want to worship you. We want to celebrate who you are and this priceless treasure that is Christ, the God-man. And so help us do that now. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. One of the cherished ministries that uh, is linked to um, Hope Point is an inner city ministry to our four Spartanburg inner city neighborhoods called Sidewalk Hope. Because COVID-19 has virtually eliminated the mainstay of the ministry, which is face-to-face -face visitation, uh, we made posters, or the teenagers of this church and other churches made posters to remind the children of these inner city neighborhoods that we have not forgotten them, that God has not forgotten them. My favorite poster that was made was one that said, Hope is not canceled. And this is, this is what it looks like. Hope is not canceled. In the 8th century B.C., God summoned the prophet Isaiah to a group of desperate people living in the northern tribes of Israel. They were ruled by a wicked king named Ahaz, and under his calamitous reign, there were constant military invasions coming in from the north, and Isaiah was sent to tell them that there is a king coming who will guarantee eternal security. Isaiah 9, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Why? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
So who is this coming somebody that can promise this kind of eternal reign? After Ahaz died, his kingdom was followed by the, the great and gracious reign of Hezekiah. But even Hezekiah was not great enough that it could be said about him that the government of all the world can rest on his shoulders and his kingdom will never end. There had to be another coming somebody, a king who was worthy of four names. As you read Isaiah's words, you will understand that he is talking about this character in history that the Jews call the Messiah. The promise of his coming was their only hope, just as the promise of his returning is our only hope. And the great news of Christmas is that he has come, and the only thing left to complete his mission in this world is his magnificent return. If there was ever a group of people who needed to hear this message of hope, it would be the people of uh, Naphtali and Zebulun. In the past, Isaiah 9, 1, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The people there walked in darkness. From a geographical standpoint, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali were the, among the ten most northern tribes. The nation of Israel was pretty much sectioned off, sort of like counties or territories or districts. And two of the most northern parts were Zebulun and Naphtali. And the reason that they had been, there were several reasons that they were referred to as humbled territories. Number one is because of their military vulnerability. When any nation ever attacked Israel, it always came in from the north. And therefore, the first people to suffer attack and the first people to die in battle was always going to be the people of Zebulun and Naphtali. The second reason that they are referred to as a humbled people living in darkness is they were near a group of people that Isaiah 9 calls Galilee of the nations. Jews thought that there were no hope for those who were among the nations outside of the Jews in this region, Galilee, which is north, which is in the northernmost part of Israel. The nations outside of the Jews worshipped other gods. And over time, the people of Zebulun and Naphtali begin to mingle with those outside of their borders and begin to adopt more of their practices than the ten tribes below the tribes of Israel. And so they were considered second class, or they were considered outsiders, even though they were part of Israel, because they were in the two northernmost tribes that mingled with the nations. They were, they were outcast to their own people, and they lived in darkness. Have you ever experienced a darkness that was so great that you said, I will never see the light of joy again. I have, and I would almost think that we all have, and some more than others at this very Christmas season. This darkness is so real. It's as real as the chair that you're sitting on. It touches you. It smothers you. It affects your sleep. It affects your eat. It affects your breathing. And it's a daunting darkness because you cannot see an end to it. And unfortunately, when you look out into the darkness, you make those kinds of statements that this darkness will never end, which only exacerbates 
the intensity of the darkness. The only future darkness that we have a right to say will never end is the darkness of a crisis eternity where those go without the Lord and they'll never see light and hope and love again. This is the way that Zebulun and Naphtali, the people who lived there, felt. But Isaiah promised them it would not always be this way. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor He will honor Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. When I look at those verses, there are three parts of it that are sort of interesting to me. The first part is that Isaiah would take the time to rename these two regions, Zebulun and Naphtali, and he would specifically call that Galilee of the nations. Why would he do that? Why would he refer to two Jewish tribes as Galilee? Because 700 years later, when Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of this prophecy, did come into the world, he would come to a region called Galilee to a peasant girl named Mary who lived in a town called Nazareth. You can never read this story enough. This is where Galilee is. This is where Nazareth is inside the district of Galilee. And this is where the angel came 700 years after Isaiah 9 was spoken. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and his kingdom will never end. Nazareth, where Jesus was born in the district of Galilee, which is Zebulun and Neptali, was such an unknown city that even when the angel or when Luke was later describing where Jesus was, where he grew up, where Mary received the vision of announcing her pregnancy, he had to tell people that Nazareth was a town in Galilee because nobody knew where it was. In the time in which Mary received this vision from the angel, in all likelihood, it was only about a hundred people who lived in the little village of Nazareth. It was so unknown that it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's so uncelebrated that when an early disciple of Jesus named Nathaniel found out that there was talk that the Messiah was from Nazareth, he replied with this question, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The place where, not Jesus was born, but the place where he grew up for the 30 years after his birth. I love the way one of my seminary professors said it about Nazareth, inside Galilee, which is inside Zebulun and Naphtali. I love what he says about this. The most significant event in the history of the world would happen in the least likely place. I'm reading a great book for this, my worship this Christmas season, written by David Mathis, the Christmas we didn't expect. And David basically says this in other words God loves to produce his best in the places we least expect. And I know that some 
where in this auditorium right now somebody is listening to my voice and they believe that they live in Nazareth. They live in Zebulun and Naphtali, a place of darkness, and there is nothing good that can come out of what is occurring in your life right now. You believe that. That's the self-talk that you generate every day. Nothing good can come out of what is happening in my life. God did His greatest work in a place where it was regarded that no great work would ever occur. So what is our answer to Nathaniel's question? Can anything good, good come out of Nazareth? The birth of the king who is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9. The second interesting part of Isaiah 9 to me is the verb tense. Verb tenses excite you, they excite me. The people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. What do you mean, have seen? Jesus is not coming for 700 years. How can you say they've seen it? Because they haven't seen it. Well, those nerds who study Hebrew grammar call this the prophetic perfect. It's when you speak of something that is so certain in the future that the verb tense you choose to write about it is in the past tense. The light has already shined because in God's mind, He's already planned and nothing will stop it from God sending Jesus into the world. It is a statement. The prophetic perfect speaks of God's reliability that everything He's planned to do good for you will be done. He won't change His mind. He was going to send light into the world and He did send light into the world. And the one who came the first time will come the second time. And when he comes the second time, he'll gather you up. The one who came as the light of the world will one day take you into a kingdom that Timothy describes in chapter 616 of a God who lives in unapproachable light. And you will be given a new body with new capacities to see and experience this unapproachable light of God. And it's guaranteed that it will happen to you, though it's not yet happened to you. The people in darkness have seen a great light. We love light. Why do you love Christmas? Well, half of it is because you love Christmas lights. But can I just remind you that the beauty of Christmas lights is always accentuated because of the dark background in which they exist. You go home today and tonight and the lights are not nearly as beautiful when it's daylight. It's when darkness falls. Lisa and I have a wreath on our garage door, and we really don't think that much of it, but we put it up every year because there was one year we didn't put it up, and we got a call from our neighbor that says, our little girls are wondering, where's the Smith's light? Where's the wreath? Because for them, it was a reminder of the hope of the light of the world. But all of the Christmas lights only have meaning because they're cast in the arena of darkness. The lights of heaven will be all the more glorious because of the dark paths that took us there. It is for greater joy that God is leading you down dark paths in order that you will love more than ever the light, the unapproachable light where you will live for 
ever. There's a third aspect that I, I find interesting in this. It says, the, A great light has shined on those living in, in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. It is a definite picture of an invasion of light. It's not a light that the people turn on. It's not a light that they can generate. It's not a candle that they light. It's a, a light that happens to them. It is a reminder that our present darkness in this culture is so great that there is no inner light we can turn on. There's nothing we can do to drive away the darkness, whether it's poverty or violence or war or disease. We cannot save ourselves and pity us if we are counting on a vaccine to wipe out all of the world's pain. We don't have the power to eliminate the darkness of this world. It must be a heavenly light outside of ourselves coming into ourselves. In the Scripture, darkness is always associated with evil. And it's also always associated with evil forces that are hurting other people, especially involved in war. And that's why Isaiah has a great promise for the future of war in God's world that he is building. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. So God is telling these people that what he's doing in the, past, in the future will, will have the the sudden power of something God did in the past. I don't know if you know about the Battle of Midian in Judges chapter 7. One of the most unusual strategic uh, choices that God ever made in military conflict. Midian had dominated Israel for seven years. There was no hope for uh, a change in the situation. God raised up a leader, a military leader, a spiritual leader named Gideon. And this was his strategy. He said, I want you to take 300 soldiers into the camp of Midian at night. And here's what you're going to be armed with. A trumpet, a torch, and a clay jar. And when I give the signal, every soldier is to blow his trumpet and break the jar, revealing the torch that was lit underneath the jar. 300 against many thousands. And when those jars burst and those trumpets sounded and that light was revealed, the Midianites turned in panic and killed each other. And Israel was set free. In just the twinkling of an eye, when Jesus Christ returns, this is what's going to happen to all of the wars in the world. As a matter of fact, God says it like this in Isaiah 9, 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be, be fueled for the fire. There's coming a time when Jesus Christ at his return will take all of the battlefields and all of the boots and all of the swords and guns and gather them in a pile and burn them all to declare that war is no more. Can you imagine how encouraging this would have been to the people of Israel? Their entire history has been the hearing of boots from other warriors coming into their land. Assyrian boots, Babylonian boots, Persian boots, Greek boots, Roman boots, Hitler's boots. In fact, the Bible says at the end of time, the nations of the world will, will surround Israel and it will look as if they're going to be no more. 
And Jesus Christ will split the eastern sky and return and stand on the Mount of Olives and save all of his redeemed people, including those in Israel who come to Christ. How encouraging that verse must have been to them. So now the question is, what event will bring about such a profound end of war and an invasion of hope? The birth of a baby. (laughs) The birth of a baby. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called a king with four names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. If you're a fan of Handel's Messiah, that great masterpiece, you will realize it has 80 references to Scripture in it. It's divided into three sections. The first section is talking about the coming of the king, the coming of the Messiah, and that's where you will find Set to music, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, where God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is called by four names. On December 6, 2010, a man named Doug Smith walked into a Portland, Oregon courtroom and asked that his name be changed. And when the judge heard the name that he wanted, he asked him, Are you kidding me? He asked that his name be changed to Captain Awesome. May I introduce you to Captain Awesome, a king with four names. Let's quickly look at what those four names mean. Number one, he's a wonderful counselor. Why is Jesus Christ a wonderful counselor? Look how the verse begins. Because there was a day when God was born on earth. That's why he's a wonderful counselor. The reason that God chose to indwell a human body is that as your counselor, anytime you come into his office, he has felt so much pain and even far more, he can tell you as your counselor, I know what that feels like. I can't say that. Andrew can't say that. Nobody on staff can say that. Jesus Christ, as your counselor, can say, I have felt all the pain you'll ever feel and even more. That's what makes him a wonderful counselor. And also what makes him a wonderful counselor is the advice he gives you when you're in his office. I'm so reluctant at many times when I, somebody comes to my office, I don't know exactly what to tell them to do. Jesus knows exactly what to tell you to do, and he's never apologetic on the path that he sends you and the place where he leads you to. Because he knows exactly what he's designed you for, and he knows exactly how the future is going to fit into this design. And his counsel is always perfect. The second description of our awesome Savior is he's an everlasting Father. Or he's a mighty God. The second is he's a mighty God. That word, basic, mighty God, is, is a Hebrew word which means it describes immeasurable energy. You look at the, the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth and everything about him screamed a mighty God. Power over nature, power over disease, power over demons, power over death, everything about Jesus Christ. There's nothing that's hard for me when I look at the Gospels to say, yep, he was God. No one could do what he did if he were not God. And I am comforted that when Jesus Christ returns, it is no problem at all for me to conceive in my mind that all evil will be destroyed. When I read about Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19 coming on his white horse surrounded by the armies of heaven, I long for that day when the mighty God will destroy 
all of evil. But do you know what I love about Jesus being a mighty God? It's not that that thrills me about him. It's back to verse 6, that this mighty God became a child. I cannot wrap my arms around it. This is mighty God of Revelation 19 would limit himself and become so vulnerable that he needed his mother's milk to survive because the mighty God became a child. The third component of this great king is he's an everlasting father, which basically means he's the father of eternity which means he's the father over all time, matter, and space. None of that existed before Christ. Time, matter, energy, space, all of it existed after him who has existed always. And when he takes it all away, he will exist still. It really is an amazing promise that an ever, that a mighty God wants to be my everlasting father. This is what blows me away about Isaiah 9. Is it really true that this great king in Revelation chapter 19 wants to be my personal father? You know, it's amazing. With relationships, the more famous or powerful somebody becomes, the less access you and I have to them. You're never going to meet the president. You won't meet really the many leaders of corporations. It's just not possible. Yet God, the most famous and most powerful in all the world, a mighty God, desires to become a, an everlasting father to sinful, needy me. He wants to be my father. And finally, he is called the Prince of Peace. Nothing more beautiful in all of the Gospels than to watch Jesus Christ bring peace to chaos the disciples are in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee. Huge storm erupts, four or five-foot waves. They think they're going to die. Jesus Christ arises from the stern of the boat where he's sleeping and speaks one word, cease. Thunder stops, the winds die down, and the water is calm. On the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they come to a region of the Gadarenes, and a man that's demon-possessed is so wild that he cuts himself and cannot be contained by chains. And Jesus Christ casts out all of his demons, and the man returns to perfect emotional and spiritual sanity because he's the Prince of Peace. I long for the day when there will be no more war, no more crime, no more disease, no more COVID, no more flood, famine, hurricanes, and earthquakes. When all mockers and cynics will be silenced. But do you know more than anything else, you know what I long for in life? I long for the day when I will have perfect peace with God. When I'll stop sinning against Him, stop doubting Him, stop living in worry and fear and defeat and depression. This is what Christ has come for, to bring you into peace with God. It's why he died on a cross. It's why he rose from the dead. It's why he lay in a manger. It's why he gave up all of his rights as God's to, to bring you peace with God. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more precious than this peace than to know that you're right with God. Nothing is more precious than a perfect, 
uninterrupted happiness, and the only one who can give it to you is the only one who possesses it. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing as peace apart from God. Just so you might need to hear it one more time, you might need to be reminded of the reliability and durability of this peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. No end in space. There's not one square inch in all the universe where the peace of Jesus Christ will not reign. No end in time. Every great ruler comes to an end. Henry Fourteenth ruled for 72 years. Can you imagine having a president for 72 years? But he died. There will never be an end to the reign of the Prince of Peace. How is this going to happen? How could it possibly happen in a world that looks so in trouble? The Scripture tells us that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. I could ask you today, do you believe in Isaiah chapter 9 that it will happen? And the answer is it doesn't matter what you believe. Because the zeal of the Lord is going to bring Isaiah 9 about. What does matter is, if you will be part of his kingdom, you do need to believe it. You do need to believe that the zeal of the Lord is going to bring this about. And you cannot enter the kingdom of light until you confess that you are part of the kingdom of darkness. You can never know him as an everlasting father until you believe that his son is your savior. And you can never know the heavenly peace of Jesus until you transfer your kingdom of your life onto his shoulders. So can we do return in closing to Nathaniel's question? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This child king that we read about came out of Nazareth. You know, at the end of Jesus' earthly life, he was sentenced to death by a governor named Pilate who thought he had all the power of the world. And just to mock Jesus, just to mock him, he chose on his cross to place a plaque about the childhood home of Jesus. John 19, 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. As a matter of fact, he put it in three languages. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, just to further mock him. Not surprised that Pilate would mock by saying, what king could come out of Nazareth? Because that's how the demons always identified Jesus when they approached him in the Gospels. Jesus of Nazareth. Because it was a place of scorn, it was a place of contempt. Can anything good really come out of Nazareth? After Jesus died, he was laid in a tomb. The world was hopeless. The disciples thought their leader was dead. And the angel said to his followers, the women who came to the tomb to anoint his body for preparation, the angel said to them, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. And from this point on, all of the preaching of Peter 
Every time he told people who Jesus was and all the miracles he performed in the book of Acts, and when he announced to the Gentiles of Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 that there was hope that they could enter the kingdom of God, he said, I do so in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, a place of scorn, a place where everybody had forgotten. And when the Apostle Paul, no bigger Christ-hater will you ever find in history, who turned into a Christ-preacher, when he told the Jewish leaders <laughs> how he got saved, he said, I met Acts chapter 26, verse 9, I met Jesus of Nazareth. I want to tell you today, Nazareth will also always feel hopeless. Like the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, it will always look like a place of darkness. But that is where Jesus lives. That is where he will meet you. So my friend, lean on him, cry out to him. Never let go of him. Because he turns graves into gardens. Shame into glory and mourning into dancing. He loves the people of Nazareth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for these that you've gathered. Many of them would enter this room today saying, I came from a place of darkness. Christmas 2020, looking one more time for hope and light. And I thank you, O God, that you specialize and causing light to dawn on those who live in darkness. We thank you for the great prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. That the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And one day there will be an end to all war. There will be an end to all gloom. There will be an end to all depression. And all misery. And all guilt. Because a child has been born. A king an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace, a mighty God on whom the government rests on His shoulders. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your announcement to those frightened women. Jesus is not here. Jesus of Nazareth has risen and He's not in the grave. God, I pray that someone, somewhere, on the web, in their home, at a coffee shop, with friends in a college dorm, or in this very room, will cry out, Prince of Peace, be my peace. Everlasting Father, be my Father. Take me from a place of darkness and place me in the kingdom of light. Turn my grave into a garden. My shame into glory. And my mourning into dancing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.